Music has a unique way to bring us into the amazing corporate presence of God, doesn't it? Amazing. Um, now to the bad news. You probably saw it when you came in. Uh, raise your hand if you don't have notes. Remember, I have a day job just like you, so if I work on Sunday, you have to work too. Um, so, uh, but you will be quite surprised. It's like in big font, and there's like 12 blanks. Um, what's happening to Dr. Dan? Um, turn with me to Matthew chapter 2. We're in the Advent season, and last week, Pastor Kurt told us that Advent means, that's actually via the old Latin into the old English, and we still use the English term Advent, it means the coming of the Most High God. And Pastor Kurt reminded us that there will be two Advents when history is over, not one. We're now celebrating the first Advent, but he reminded us last, last week that if the second Advent comes, then much of what Jesus promised is a lie because he has not yet taken down all powers of darkness. They still are around, but we have read the last page. There is a day coming, my friends. So let me ask you this week, did you learn from the Spirit's message that you were to, you were to be watching and you're to be ready? Do you come from one Sunday to the next having been changed? So today, second week of Advent, he is Lord. So he is coming, and today he is Lord. And we've sung magnificent songs proclaiming that truth and reality. Matthew chapter 2, look with me. It'll also be up on the screen now. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is this? He, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And gathering together the chief priests and the scribes of the people began to inquire of them where the Christ was to be born. And they said of him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet, and you Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. Is that in all caps up there? You know what that means? You know what that means in the typical true translation? That's a quote from the Old Testament. So we're seeing, thus it was said, now he's revealed. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will be shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and ascertained from the time, them the time the star had appeared. And he sent them into Bethlehem and said, Go and make careful search for the child, and when you have found him, report to me that I too may come and worship him. And having heard the king, they went away, and lo, the star, which they had been seen in the east, went on before them until it came and stood over the, the, where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And they came into the house and saw the child with Mary, his mother. They fell down and worshiped him. And opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed for their own country by another way. Now, for many reasons, this is an incredibly unlikely text to be in the Scripture. Think about this. This is about a 
mysterious set of players called the Magi. And when you think about it, it's a surprise that they even appear in the story of Christ, right? The birth of Christ, it just doesn't make sense. They're, they're actually given a really prominent place. To put this in perspective, in the Gospel of Matthew, the story of Jesus' birth is told in eight verses. And the story of the Magi gets 12. Ever noticed that before? So we're going to look at the description of the journey and see what we learn from their pursuit of finding the king, this Lord of all, Jesus who was Lord, and why in the world would it have 50% more space in the story than even the birth of Messiah himself. So we're going to learn three lessons this morning from the Magi. So uh, get your pens out. Here you go. Here's your first blank. Magi lesson number one. If he's truly Lord then he deserves our true worship. Now, perhaps some of you are stargazers. Maybe uh, we even have a few amateur astronomers in the crowd. But uh, even if you're enamored with planets and galaxies and black holes, I doubt that anyone has ever had the response that the Magi did when they had this star, when they saw the star. The scripture paints a picture of a dramatic response to the stellar sighting. Here it is. Look at the text. And when they saw the star... They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Now, if you were watching that from a distance, and maybe their wives thought, man, he needs a CAT scan. I mean, so it's a star. I mean, (laughs) this is a bit over the edge for a celebration. I mean, not even astrophysicists get this excited about a star. Um, But the text makes it really clear why they had such an over-the-edge reaction. Since they'd paid attention to the prophecies, they intuited that the star was going to lead them to the new king of Israel. Even though they weren't Jewish, from the Hebrew scriptures, they knew that the coming of this king was the ultimate reason to celebrate. It brought them great joy. God had come to dwell with humanity, and they weren't going to miss a chance to worship him. Watch this. of kings, born in the most humble of places. God made into flesh. Incense for the priests of 
gift of myrrh to honor the sacrifice. Somehow, somehow these obscure Easterners had a clue about something that was almost unknown by the entire rest of the world. The Magi were truly remarkable. And they illustrate a focus on the Lordship of Christ that puts to shame many of us who have way more information about the Christ than they ever had. They interrupted their busy lives to actually worship the king. But let me contrast them to the kind of culture we're part of. We're in a society that's constantly begging for our attention. Many of us can't have a significant conversation uninterrupted by electronic media. Uh, as I was preparing this message, I was at uh, Panera Bread, and I watched two guys, and one guy was pouring his heart out about something. They were too far away uh, to uh, here, and Dana wasn't with me, so we didn't move closer. Um, and, um, and uh, <laughs> sorry, babe, uh, Cur Curious is her middle name. Um, and, and the entire time, the guy listening, the friend, literally never took, he didn't even drop this and pretend to be looking. He kept the, uh, his uh, device right in front of his face through the entire conversation. Then the guy stopped talking, and he got up, went and got soda, and they left. That's the kind of, se of setting that we live in. Um, let me give some examples of how easy it is to replace focus of worshiping our king with something else that holds our attention. Perhaps you got up in the middle of the night on ba Black Friday. Uh, I'm not going to ask for testimonies. And you stood in the cold so that you could get that super amazing deal on that super amazing thing. And maybe you jumped for joy, but hopefully that kind of celebration is never confused with the exceedingly great joy and hope that we hope to have as part of our worship of the Lord. Um, but lest uh, you non-shoppers uh, get smug, let me uh, just say add a few more things. So let me, let me uh, spread the pain to others. Yeah, you'd never dream of doing the maniacal Black Friday thing, but how about when you go to a basketball game and you go nuts when the team drains a, a game-winning shot at the buzzer? See, this kind of joy is actually a great gift from God. Things like landing on the moon are supposed to bring amazement and 
and even joy. It's just so amazing what the image of God can do in us, and it's amazing how he has spread joy broadcast in our lives, and those are good things. That happiness, that sharing, the community, whatever it is that's your, your thing. Um, but anything can become so important to us that it takes away our ability to focus on the king. Listen to some really great things that can take our focus. It can be a job, or a toy, or a relationship, or your appearance, or school, or a hobby, or your favorite car, or even too much focus on your own health. All of these can replace Christ at the center of our attention. So God gives us a lot of joy, a lot of things to celebrate, but these should pale compared to the joy that we find in him. Our one great celebration should be in him alone. It's not that we don't have other interests, and of course we participate in all kinds of activities that bring a smile to our face, but our greatest joy, joy should come from simply being in the presence of the king. This should be our only preoccupation. It should be our only great passion. So at this time of year, with all the distractions, all the pastimes, all the parties, all the presents, do you find your greatest joy from being in the presence of the king? We'll come back to the probably thousand-mile journey that they took, but um, they paid a high price to just be in the presence of Jesus. Or have the things of this world become first place in your life? Has your focus, your heart been captured by Christ? Or have you allowed yourself to become preoccupied by something or someone else? Let me boil down this point to a simple question. Who or what has captivated your mind and captured your heart? What can you not even stop thinking about long enough to worship and hear the word this morning because you're thinking about that thing? I know that's a killer. I hate that question. Where does your greatest joy come from? Lesson number one from the Magi. If he's truly Lord, then he deserves our true worship. Magi lesson number two. Here's your next blank. The highest form of worship. So we've gotten to worship. Now look at this. The highest form of worship is obedience. I don't know if you knew that, but in the Old and the New Testament, the highest form of worship is obedience. Many believers think that the corporate singing is synonymous with worship. As you know, in many churches, the worship pastor is the person who plans and leads the music. But in the New Testament text, there are actually three separate Greek words for worship. And the Magi actually illustrate all three. So let's look at them. These are in your notes. Here's your blank. The first one is liturgeo. We often translate this in English into liturgy, something you undoubtedly have heard of. It's the way you do your service. Um, an example of this comes from Hebrews chapter 9. Look at the verses here. Now even the first covenant and regulations of divine worship, there's the word, liturgeo. Even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and earthly sanctuary. Now the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, talking about the old covenant, performing the liturgeo, the divine worship. So this is a, a corporate experience like we're having right now. We call it the worship service. And this happened with the Magi. They joined together to seek out the Christ child, and then they came together before him as a worshiping community. And interestingly enough, 
I think the typical American Christian, that is the sum total of their worship. Do you worship God? Yes, I go to church on Sunday, and we worship God for the first 22 minutes before the preacher gets up. I worship. Later, J.O. The second is, here's your blank, proskuneo, and it means to prostrate oneself or to bow in worship. Make sure you put the R, two R's in prostrate. Um, yeah, some of you will get that tomorrow. I'm a doctor. I can't you know, leave out the medical humor, you know. It, it, again, if you knew how much I was holding back, you'd be proud of me. Um, we, we find this in the story of the Magi when they came to the Christ child, right? Look at the text from Matthew chapter 2 again. Look at this. And they came to the house and saw the child with Mary's brother. And this is the Magi. Here's the Greek word, proskuneo. They literally fell down and worshipped. That's actually one word in the Greek. That's what that means. They fell down and worshipped. So this is the physical act of worship. It's standing or kneeling, sometimes even perhaps on our faces, and it's certainly raising our hands. It's the including our physical bodies in the full, complete expression of worship. It's one of the reasons why we often stand when we worship together. It's saying it's not just my mind and just my heart. Humans, we are not Gnostics. The flesh and the spirit are fully integrated. They're not separate. And then number three, here's your blank, the third word, latreia, which means literally worship through serving and obeying. That single word actually is, it needs a whole phrase in English. Worship through serving and obeying. And now you can see how I contended that lots of us stop at number one, especially when you get number, to number three, worship all of a sudden becomes costly. Worship becomes costly. Now, some of you are saying, yeah, I'm not like the maniacs that raise my hands and jump up and down, so it's really costly if you make me stand up and raise my hands. That's not what I'm talking about. This is real cost. Um, so look at this. In Romans chapter 12, verse 1, you know this verse almost for sure. I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present yourself as a living sacrifice. And you ready? The worship word, Latreia, is coming, which is your acceptable Latreia your service of worship, your obedience. You've given yourself as a sacrifice. You laid down your life. That is, in fact, the highest form of worship. Notice the emphasis. This worship, where I offer my life completely to God, it is the surrender of my will to his will. True worship. With the Magi, we see in their willingness to disrupt their lives to respond to God's call. They weren't deterred by time or distance or hardship or lost wages or cost or inconvenience. We'll come back to this in a minute, but suffice it to say that it was no small sacrifice for them to make this journey to Bethlehem. And ultimately, none of us will ever be able to truly worship God until we come to the point where, with our whole life, we offer our obedience and worship to him. In fact, here's, the, here's your blank. The greatest possible expression of worship is this. You'll remember it. <laughs> You'll remember it from the Garden of Gethsemane. Lord, not my will, but yours. The highest form of worship. 
But there's also a flip side to this. You'll find that if you're living outside of God's will, probably every believer has experienced this at some point, and some may be experiencing it right now. If you're living it outside of God's will, then the rest of your relationship with him will quickly become dry. Your study of the word, your prayer life, your devotions, your desire to be with him, and even your corporate worship, all of these will quickly become bland or an annoyance, or you may even avoid them altogether. You may come to church, but it's merely out of obligation, or it may even be a facade. The joy of praising and worshiping the king will be replaced by drudgery, or just going through the motions, or coming to church to please someone else, or to hide the fact that you're far from God. See, if you dress up nicely and show up to church, you can hide an amazing amount of distance from your king. See, celebration will be gone. And this is because we were made to only experience true worship when we're living in the center of God's will. That's where the great joy is. The highest form of worship isn't physical or falling down or singing at the top of our lungs. That is a part of biblical worship. But lesson number two is the highest form of worship is obedience to the perfect will of God. And this leads us to Magi lesson number three. Here's your blanks. The highest form of obedience is trust. The highest form of obedience is trust. Now in a moment we're going to see how this concept flows right out of the story of the Magi. But first we need a bit of background on the biblical concept of obedience. When you think about what it means to obey God, we generally think of it this way. It's doing the right thing and not doing the wrong thing. Obedience. Right thing to do, wrong thing to do. I do this, I don't do that. Obedience. And there's no question that this is part of it. Obedience is not less than that. But if this is all we understand about it, we can make the error of thinking we're okay as long as we're not doing things really badly. But the obedience that pleases God most goes far deeper. Let me illustrate this from a verse from the Psalms. Now, here's the background in the Old Testament. In many places in the Old Testament, if you've looked for this, the literary scholars picked up on this uh, literally millennia ago, um, the scripture will contrast one thing and then in the next in the biblical text. One part of the text and in the next biblical text they'll give the contrast, right? So you have something like the word light in this phrase, and then the next line will contrast it to darkness. All right, so you probably now, thinking about this, have noticed these pairs exist all through the scripture. So you get strength versus weakness, honesty versus deception, gentleness versus violence, and contentment versus greed. So think about what do you think is really at the base of the opposite of sin or sinfulness or evil or wickedness. Notice this. Look at Psalm 32.10. And look at this couplet. Many sorrows come to the wicked, but unfailing love surrounds those who do good, are righteous. No, look at the couplet. Look at the contrast. Many sorrows come to the wicked, but unfailing love surrounds those who trust. 
Notice the contrast. We typically think that the opposite of bad is good. The opposite of evil is righteousness. The opposite of wickedness is holiness. And these contrasts are true, but it's not the essence. Here's the key concept. Write this in. Look at this. The opposite of being wicked is trusting God. Notice how much deeper that is than just not doing bad things and doing good things. It's so much deeper than just obedience. And this concept is embodied in the story of the Magi. Think with me. Uh, Most scholars believe that these are Persians coming from the east, modern-day Iran. If this is the case, the round-trip journey probably took them many months. Pastor Kurt talked a bit about this last week. It probably took several years, the round trip. So in the meantime, think of the things that they risked back home. See, you couldn't wire money back then. It's very easy to miss the risk that these guys took. Back home, what if someone ousted them from their positions of honor while they were gone? Who's going to protect their possessions? What if the stewards that they left in charge of their households didn't keep things in order? Think of the things that they were giving up and leaving behind. Their obedience to the prophecy shows that they trusted God enough to take the risks of altering their lives incredibly uncomfortably. This allowed God's word to impact their decisions. Their pursuit of finding Jesus determined, think about this, it determined their pursuit of finding Jesus determined how they spent their time, where they went, and even how they used their possessions. They actually risked a lot for Jesus. In fact, making the decision to travel to Judea must have been a really tough one. Watch this. Barren desert, inhospitable plains, rugged mountain ranges, then Jerusalem. Truly, you speak of a spiritual journey, Marco, not one that would actually take you there. You wish to travel to the land of Judea? No. I wish for all of us to go. Melchior, this land you speak of, it will take months to journey there. We know nothing of the dangers we may find. And you following a star only because it burns bright? Althazar, surely you will join me. A star will be as bright here as anywhere. But you said to yourself it would be a star over Judea. Marco, yes, we need my instruments, my charts. Take them. But what about my cushions, my pillows? What about the food I'm accustomed to? <laughs> Very accustomed to. Yes, I need my dates, my nuts, my spices. What about my wine, Marquion? If you need another camel, I'll bring it for you. Join me. Both of you. They will be wasted months. I'm sorry, but I cannot join you. Only one more camel? 
sounds like he needed more than one extra camel for his nuts, his dates, and what he liked to eat. Um, this, uh, in, a, in a humorous way, gives us a tiny snapshot of the amazing inconvenience. Um, you know, we drive all the way from Chandler. Aren't you impressed with our sacrifice? I mean, we co actually come 20 miles to church. Um, amazing when we see how disconnected we are from both the history and the geography of how costly it has been to worship the Christ in so many settings in history and today in so many parts of the world. You see, this video clip just gives us a tiny snapshot of what must have been going on through their minds. The decision was no small matter. While we don't know a lot about these men, the Bible does give us some key information. We know they journeyed from a long distance. We know they believed that the child was divine and worthy of their worship, and we know that they had access to some of the biblical messianic prophecies. But we have no idea whether they had access to the rest of the Old Testament. The text doesn't tell us whether they knew the Ten Commandments, or for that matter, any of God's law. And yet, they're highlighted among only a handful of individuals in the entire biblical account of Christmas. Twelve whole verses. So we don't know much about them, but what we do know is that their pursuit of Jesus became a major driving force in their lives. And this is where we can learn the most from them. Let's think about what they went through to find the Messiah. Imagine the months of travel. Imagine what they left behind. The cost of the journey, the inconvenience. Imagine the risks that they took to travel on roads that often had bandits just waiting for travelers just like them, wealthy and unprotected. Imagine how many others saw the star back home but weren't willing to respond to the invitation from God to come to worship his son. Imagine the ridicule they must have received when they set out on this absurd wild goose chase. Can't you just hear the crowd? Listen to the crowd and maybe their friends. You're going, where? What's wrong with the Persian gods? You can worship all you want down at the local temple. After all, God couldn't possibly want you to cross hundreds of miles of desert just to spend a few minutes with a baby. How foolish they must have appeared. To sacrifice so much for Christ, to center their plans around him, to spend so much time seeking him. After all, they had their own plans, and they had their own lives to live. Why would they so dramatically rearrange their priorities for God? And yet, with very little information, they did. So these obscure biblical figures remain an amazing example for us, even to this day. Look at the example of the Magi. Here's your blanks. The example of the Magi, their trust, notice, their trust in God led them to be willing to sacrifice their plans and their future for him. See, they didn't have insurance in case everything tanked at home. It was an amazing trust walk of the highest order. So let's apply their example personally. Are we willing to allow Jesus to get in the way of what we want for our lives? Are we willing to surrender our ways to follow his way? And let's take this a step farther. This isn't just about who I'm going to obey. It's far deeper than that. It really boils down to one thing. Who am I going to trust? That's the fundamental issue. 
Am I going to try to find my way in this world by following my own plan? Or am I going to turn the reins over to him even when his ways lead in a direction that I don't want to go? So let me summarize the three lessons we've learned from the Magi about the lordship of Jesus. In the end, here's your blanks. Everything that really matters in life boils down to one issue. Here's your blank. Am I going to trust myself or am I going to trust God? It's the huge question. Now this morning I suspect we have a whole spectrum of people here. Undoubtedly there are some here who have never committed your life to Christ. And I'm sure there are others that are following him with your whole heart. But I also suspect that there's a whole lot of us in the middle of that, right? Let me describe it. Trusting God in a few things, or in some things, or maybe trusting God in a lot of things, but not trusting him in everything. Perhaps there are quite a few of us here who are trusting him in the easy things, the convenient things, the comfortable things, the things that come easily, or in things that don't matter very much, but when it comes to the big things, like handing over our complete control of our lives, we've been holding that trust for ourselves. Pastor Josiah and the team. In a moment... The altars are going to be open. I don't know about you, but the Magi convict me. Their life is really convicting to me. Now, the altars will be open in a few minutes for several kinds of people. First, if you've never known Jesus as Savior, this is a call to repent of your sins and confess that He is Lord. You're not Lord. He's Lord. And have Him as Savior. For some others... When I talked about life being too busy, stop for a minute. Some of you put down your cell phones. When I talked about life being too busy, you realize that you're so distracted that you're actually missing the most important thing. And with the Magi, it's time to be willing to interrupt your busy life and be willing to pay any price to make sure that you don't miss truly worshiping the newborn king. This morning, maybe you realize that the things of this world or the cares of this world, maybe you're saying, well, I, I don't think I have materialistic issues, but the concerns of this world, the cares of this world, the responsibilities of this world, that they have captured your attention and you've pushed Jesus to the periphery. Maybe not even intentionally. It's just happened. And you know that it's time to return to him being your preoccupation, to him being your great passion. Let me ask you, was there ever a time in your life when he was absolutely at the center? And if you can remember that, do you want it back? Still others may have realized that you're worshiping Christ with your words and with your voice. You may have sung really loudly. And you know there's an area yet where you're disobeying him. So you've, you've disconnected your worship. There's not integrity in your worship. You've got the first kind of worship and maybe even the second kind of worship. But the highest form of worship is obedience. That Latreia, that Lord, I want to be a sacrifice for you. 
can you make me a pure sanctuary? Now you've been reminded of this high, this high worship, and you need to recommit yourself to Jesus. Do you want it back? And finally, there may be here some this morning that you know Jesus and you're worshiping Jesus and you're even obeying Jesus. But you know there are areas of your life where you're still keeping control. Maybe they're good things. They're not sin, but you're not willing to completely release any, everything to him. And when you boil it all down, you know that you haven't been willing to put your full trust in him and it's time for you to lay your whole life on the altar. Everything. Yeah, even that thing that you're thinking about right now. Stand with me. Stand with me, congregation. What better time could there be than during Advent, during the coming of the Most High God? What better time could there be for every one of us to return to a simple trust in Christ? What a perfect time to return to our first love. What a perfect time to make sure that we're trusting Him in everything. This morning, whether you need to give your life to Christ for the first time, or whether you need to get rid of the distractions and make space in your life to truly worship Jesus, maybe down here you can just find the first few minutes of respite without any gadgets or noise for the first time in a long time. Or if you have an area of disobedience that needs to surrender. Or if the last bastion of self-reliance, self-trust, needs to give it, be given back to God so that you completely trust Him in every aspect of your life. Regardless of where you are, the altars are open for those who are willing to surrender yourself to the Lordship of Christ and to completely trust Him in everything. If that's your desire for your life, Lord, it's all on the altar. It all belongs to you. You have everything. Then come as we sing together. Josiah, just come.